Hello, I'm the Reverend Nathan Stomberg, and welcome to the Lively Faith Podcast. I am the rector of Holy Communion Anglican Church in East Greenwich, Rhode Island, and today we're joined by the Reverend Mark Galloway, a presbyter at Holy Communion. So let's get started. We've got a very interesting topic for you today, Mark, and for our listeners. Excited. We're going to be talking in large part about cryptocurrency as well as some concepts around the idea and the temptation of easy money, gambling, mm. lottery. It's going to feel like we're going way out in left field, but Mark, I encourage you just to, to hang on tight because it's going to come back in and it'll all make sense in the end, hopefully, God willing, <laughs> as, long as, as long as we don't make your head blow up or okay. something today. So cryptocurrency, here's a question to start us off, Mark. For you, you're going to speak for all baby boomers at large here. Excellent. What do you, what do you know about cryptocurrency? What no, do you think about no, it? Nothing. Not a thing. <laughs> no. Nothing at all. I really don't. I, I, other than I've had a, a few friends that have tangentially talked to me about that they have actually invested in it and hmm. bought it, but I really have no working knowledge of it whatsoever. But you are aware that it's been discussed quite frequently like in popular culture yes and i'm aware discourse. and i'm aware in the news recently that it's there's been a lot of um, market turmoil turmoil and illegal stuff going on and controversy and so forth yeah. yeah and i think that was one of the reasons why i want to talk about it today is because it's happening it's big and there are lessons to be learned about it for the thinking Christian. And my, much like with a lot of the other stuff we talk about, we want to continually engage with the world as things are changing and to have a spirit of learning as we apply the Christian faith to current events, and new ideas, and beyond. So I think before we go any further, just want to offer a disclaimer that none of this is financial advice. I am by no means a financial expert. Mark's an expert in a lot of things, but he's not a financial expert uh, either. Definitely not. Contrary to popular belief. So I'm also not a crypto expert. So these are going to be very rudimentary explanations, but I think that'll be helpful for those of us who really don't have too much exposure to what cryptocurrency is. So there are a few things that get thrown around, a few words, a few terms, Mark, that get used, that we will use, that are helpful to define. The first is blockchain. There's a technology called blockchain technology. And this is, if nothing else, take this away as the primary technological development that I think will outlast the idea of crypto or of Bitcoin. So blockchain technology, imagine, Mark, something like a financial spreadsheet. Yep. Doesn't even have to be on the computer, just a, a written ledger that's used to keep track of the finances for a business. So now take that ledger and imagine it digital. So it exists digitally, it exists on the internet. Is that so far so good? So far, I'm safe. So far, you're safe. So this ledger, as blockchain, imagine this spreadsheet, this ledger, copied a thousand times. So you have a thousand sheets of paper. 
all stored on the internet. This ledger is copied a thousand times across a thousand different computers. So a blockchain is that ledger, that spreadsheet distributed across a network of computers. And what happens is when you're running a business, for example, you're making a financial transaction between two parties, what needs to happen? You need both parties to agree, right? Mm -hmm. That the same amount of money is being exchanged and that one person isn't trying to fool the other. So instead of people, replace the people with computers. So when a transaction takes place on this digital spreadsheet, there's an encryption that happens and both computers work to verify, to reconcile that okay. digital ledger. So you basically have, with blockchain technology, a vast network of encryption and digital ledgers that take out the middleman were you to have a bunch of transactions taking place on paper. So because of this massive distributed computing power, powerful encryption is used, which prevents information from being counterfeited or copied. It can be duplicated, but you can't, you can't commit forgery with a digital ledger that is stored on blockchain. Okay. So far, so good, right? Your head is still I screwed so. on. So I looked up online, there are some good, simple definitions of what blockchain technology is. One author, uh, William Mugiar, on a website called The Business Blockchain, defines it this way. So you imagine two entities, like banks, that need to update their own account balances when money is transferred from one customer to another. So they spend a tremendous amount of time employing people to verify and coordinate and synchronize that transfer of money between one bank to another or from a bank to a business. There's a bunch of people that make sure that the right amount of money gets from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. So typically that money is held by the originator until everything else can be confirmed that it happens exactly as it should. But with blockchain, you can have a single ledger of transactions that get verified by basically computers on the distributed network instead of individuals working to reconcile that ledger. So basically you are taking verification, which is done by humans and sourcing that out to a network of computers. So that is what underlies blockchain technology. Okay. So this is a recent development. This is the technology that underpins cryptocurrency. So cryptocurrency is digital currency that is, that's foundation is blockchain technology. And the reason why it's become so popular in public discourse, especially amongst the tech sector, is because of how secure it is. And that security is brought forth by the encryption of blockchain technology. So it's, it's the most, Bitcoin is the most popular mm -hmm. cryptocurrency. That's the one that people have heard of most and its value is derived by its scarcity think of it as a digital commodity now obviously it's only going to be worth what people are willing to pay for it so over the last several years we've received trillions and trillions of dollars of stimulus payments not only in the u.s but you've had loose financial policy across the world so markets have been flooded with 
trillions of dollars of easy money. People have had cash lining their pockets. And so Bitcoin, because of nerds getting excited about the things that I just explained to you, saw it as a tremendous store of value. Mm-hmm. And as money rushes into these assets, into these digital commodities, the price shoots up very quick. And now, all of a sudden, it becomes an attractive way to make a lot of money really fast. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we get later on in this conversation. But there are other copycats of cryptocurrency, of, uh, of Bitcoin specifically. They're called altcoins, which they operate on the same principle. Our producer would be familiar with Ethereum. You may have heard of Dogecoin, which was pumped by Elon Musk. It's really just a, a joke cryptocurrency, but it operates, again, digitally the same way. And you may have also heard of NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Now we're, I can see your head starting to flow off. But this is, all of this describes a culture of, of easy money, of experimentation with human funds and with technology that is really nothing new under the sun, a different package of the same old temptation to, to greed and to very quick monetary gain. Someone like, uh, I think, Justin Bieber had recently purchased, so there was an NFT. It was called, it was a digital cartoon of a bored ape, and it was, it couldn't be duplicated because of the blockchain technology that we just described. He paid $1.2 million for this digital cartoon, which is basically like, think of him as investing in a piece of artwork, but it's digital. That price has since gone down into like, the tens of thousands, like 90-something thousand as of November. So that gives an idea of the volatility of the, the investments or the speculations that we have been talking about. Um, are you with me so far? How, how does this feel? I hope so. <laughs> you hope so. You hope you're with me. <laughs> yes. No, I think I get the gist of it. So with this... You mentioned recently, or you mentioned that recently, there has been controversy and fraud around the cryptocurrency industry. And really, the fun and games have come to an end, and valuations of crypto have come down very sharply. So, again, going back to the temptation of easy money, eventually, when you are, you're not making investments, but you are making speculations someone is going to be left holding the bag. Mm. And so what would you say to a Christian who is interested in making such a speculation? Uh, you mean ethically? Ethically speaking. Oh, that... Well, well I would hope to be um, a bit more versed than, than I am currently if I was going to respond to them, but just as a, a general moral principle, is that any, any movement economically for a believer that its initial purpose is to really dishonestly gain economic advantage from the downfall of another is immoral. Yeah, and I think 
one thing that happens, whether it's with cryptocurrency or whether it's even going back to something like land speculation, if you mm. go back centuries, there's always a veneer in front of the actual workings of the exchanges that are going on. So that if you're not thinking about these things critically, then you can be tricked into putting your money into something that you think is a wise investment or you're not giving consideration to the fact that when the house of cards comes crumbling down, because it's not an investment made in something that provides substantive actual value in the market, then someone's going to be left with nothing at the end of it. Oh, and yeah. so Christians need to be cognizant of making unwise investments of that nature. So case in point, we just recently witnessed the largest Ponzi scheme in all of American history. So you would be familiar with Bernie Madoff. Yes. And you would also be familiar with the Enron scandal of the 90s. Yes. So to put this into perspective, the um, guy who oversaw the collapse of Enron, he was called in to clean it up, was also called in to clean up this recent wow. collapsed crypto exchange. And this guy... Uh, his name is John J. Ray. He took over as, as the CEO of this company, FTX. And he said that the collapse of this crypto exchange was bigger than Enron. Hmm. <laughs> so he was there in person for both. Wow. To, to give you a little more context, and then we're going to loop this back into Christian moral virtue and what should be instructive for us. But you've got a crypto exchange, which you can think of as... Just like any other financial exchange, customers park their funds in there that make them available to trade on a specific market. Mm -hmm. So with this, there was a company called FTX that was founded by a young, um, he was seen as a wonderkind billionaire, Sam Bankman-Fried. And so this company ended up being a Ponzi scheme, which is basically just this form of fraud in which the success of a non-existent enterprise is fostered by the payment of quick returns. So like the first investors fund the returns of, of later, the, or the funds of later investors fund the returns of earlier investors. So there isn't enough money to go around. There isn't a one-to-one -one matchup mm. of money for what people are putting in. Um, I'm not going to go too much further. There's a lot of excellent analyses online for people who are interested in this sort of thing. But basically, this exchange collapses. And the CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, um, has been loved by the elite classes in our country because of his philanthropy to political causes of all kinds. So as we were talking about off camera, the warning signs were there, but they were overlooked because he donated money it's to the right political people. the right people. Exactly. Yeah. And he was able to... I think swindle a lot of people who got starry-eyed about being able to invest in what appeared to be such a lucrative opportunity. So Tom Brady, famous example, was a big investor. They also got the naming rights to the Miami Heat Arena, so now they have to change the name wow, I didn't of, know that that. of that arena in Miami. Really? Yeah. So there are huge financial ramifications because at the end of the day, it was leaked that FTX was a massive Ponzi scheme. They were taking money 
from this exchange, funneling it into the, another enterprise, a research um, company that had been founded by the same guy, and they were using it to pump up their own digital currency. And so when all this came out, there was a run on the exchange for funds, and they went bankrupt. And this had a knock-on effect on the rest of the industry, so now you're seeing the values of cryptocurrencies collapse all over the place. And this is billions and billions of dollars that people were swindled out of, worse than Madoff, worse than Enron. And, wow. and it's, it's really, it's hard to comprehend, one, just because of the, the technical aspects of it, but it's also, it happened just like that. And right. now we have this, this generational transformation, really a new face of fraud in the country. One last thing that I think is instructive, and then I'll turn it over to some questions here. A few interviews have been done by um, mainstream media and by journalistic outlets with this CEO, this disgraced ex-CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried. Mm -hmm. And he really demonstrated how cynically you can play the woke culture game. And this is where the implications come in for society at large. He did a text interview with Vox Media where he was quoted that, again, he, he was able to uh, skirt ethics. And his thinking was, this is a dumb game, I'm quoting him, that woke Westerners play where you just say all the right shibboleths and people like you because of it. Yeah. And so he's laying all the cards out on the table as to what the game really is when it comes to um, succeeding in the marketplace nowadays. So the bottom line, the takeaway for all of this, again, something that I think many people may have seen in the news is that broadly speaking, we are easily tempted by easy money. And this is yeah. part of sinful human nature. Yes, we, we always have been. Right. And it's, I think, it's not just with crypto. It's with things like the lottery and with gambling and sports betting. And that's where it comes back to this is the same old sin just packaged up with a new facade. Yes. Um, I mean, obviously not with all this, the modern crypto stuff, but um, several years ago, um, when I was in Episcopal Diocese, there was the um, debate that we had at the diocesan level about um, the lottery, and also, even at a parish level, having these endless raffles was, you know, is, is that a way that the Christian church should do stewardship? And of course, at the time, I was the chair of evangelism and stewardship, and I'm like, absolutely not. It's not a free giving of anything. You're, you're giving money with the expectation you might have a chance to get more money back than you gave uh, into the, the raffle in the first place, which to me is not Christian at all. It's not, it's not a moral concept of, of, of uh, the church doesn't raise money. The church receives money as gifts of charity to the work of the gospel. And um, the more we distort that as uh, the body of Christ, uh, the further and further we get from the biblical principles of what stewardship is, 
and what God expects us of um, as human beings. You know, it goes back to the you know, to, to the to our mythical origins in the Garden of Eden. You know, God, we are expected to labor and to do honest labor for honest, you know, honest work for honest pay. And any type of scheme that isn't about you actually producing product that you you labored to produce and then you pass it on because it's actually a product that furthers the betterment of the common good is an immoral enterprise. Yeah. And with all ensuing advancements in culture and technology, the game just gets more ramped up, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. So a question that I have for you, I know you've answered this before, but for those who maybe haven't considered, as a, as a church leader, as a minister of the gospel, would you, would you um, let's say one of your parishioners wins the lottery, hits the Powerball, wins millions and millions of dollars, and wants to make a generous donation to your church, do you accept that money? No, I, I, I've, been, I've had to deal with this. Uh, I was actually posed the question when I was a young rector, um, and then dealt, I had to deal with it. It wasn't millions of dollars, but it was a significant amount of money. And would you take this money? And this person was presenting as if they were making some hugely generous donation to the church out of an abundance of uh, hard-earned money. And I told him to keep his money. And um, that went over like a lead balloon with other leaders in the church, right? And they thought I was being, uh, I guess, a legalist and a fundamentalist about these doctrines. And I tried to explain that, you know, it's just a can of worms that you're getting yourself into. You can, once you start going on that path, you can justify anything, right? Yeah. Why, why can't you take uh, money from a drug cartel leader who's sitting in your back pew, coming to Eucharist every week, and you don't really know who he is or where his money comes from, right? And as if God's going to honor that just because it's cash. God's a lot smarter than that, right? And expects us to be uh, much more judicious in our... Um, stewardship of resources. And, yeah. Um, it's just so much, it's just so vastly more sophisticated than anything I ever would have dealt with, you know, 30 years ago in ministry. Uh, but it, I'm sure, I mean, what if, you know, you're a rector and somebody made, you know, $50 million on this, this whole Ponzi scheme, but they're looking for a place to dump it and they're thinking, you know, you know, I've turned it into cash, I'll get it to, you know, to the Reverend Stomberg, you know. Um, you need to know where that money came from. Yeah, it's part of good stewardship. Absolutely, and you, you're accountable if you don't know where that money came from. Yes, that's something that people <clears throat> very often don't give uh, thought to, is no. that we will be held accountable in the final analysis for not only all that we think and that we say, but also... The, uh, the outcomes of our actions. Yeah, it's not, how is it a whole lot different than how you invest your money in your portfolio, right? So if, you know, if you're, in your, if you're investing your money in a Chinese labor camp, 
that's producing, you know, uh, Nike sneakers on 10 cents on the hour for a laborer in China, and you're selling them over here for $400 a pair, it's utterly immoral. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be involved in any such operation. And just because you're giving, let's say you give all of your profits to charity, that so doesn't, exactly, that doesn't make what's happening more. Yeah, how, how, does, how does your, quote, charity, whatever that may be, I would suspect you and I wouldn't find what most people give money to in America as charity. Um, uh, how does that take away from the utter injustice of the person being taken advantage of as slave labor in a communist country? Right, that doesn't change a thing. It won't change a thing. And yeah. all it does is perpetuate the, the acceptance of that social philosophy. And it plays into the idea that the ends justify the means, and that becomes a philosophy of convenience, even, even for the church. Oh, it's, it's, it's the philosophy of 90% of people I ever met. The ends always justifies the means, right? Uh, it, it goes back to a zillion moral questions you and I have dealt with, right? Uh, we can't afford to have children, so the abortion justifies the means, right? How's that any different in a moral equation uh, than this? It's, it's, it always comes back, right? Wrong is wrong and right is right, and that's how it is. Exactly. And... Um, Amounts of money have nothing to do with it. Right. And the amounts of money being transferred from what a group of people might think is um, a charitable cause to disadvantaged people, if it's dishonest mammon, it's dishonest mammon. And it will not bring about the furtherment of the kingdom of God. Right. So here's going off of what you just said that the amounts don't really matter. No. What do you say to someone who, and this, this is going to go over really well, I think, with a lot of people, I, just commonly speaking. What do you say to someone who just spends a few dollars here or there on the Powerball because, hey, you might, you might hit it rich, and that's the Christian specifically. It's, that's not a lot of money. It's budgeted, so they're, they're not putting themselves at financial risk by doing this recreationally. Yeah, there's not consensus uh, in the Christian spectrum on something like that. Um, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church does not find um, the lottery immoral, hmm. right? Personally, I do. I've never bought a lottery ticket in my whole life, and I think anybody who buys lottery tickets is, is you know, it's one thing if it's just like you spend, let's say you spend five bucks a week on a lottery ticket. You're not putting your family in jeopardy necessarily. But most people can't live their lives that way. It leads right. to addictions and so forth. People buy hundreds of dollars in lottery tickets, and the chances of ever recuperating any of your money are almost zero. So really, you're, you're um, abandoning your responsibility as a parent or as a father or whatever to your, your family by wasting your money on a get-rich scheme that's never going to happen. It's not an investment. It's absolutely not an investment. So, you know, I'm old enough to remember when the lottery system went into effect in Rhode Island in the mid-70s. I was in junior high school, and it was all going to go to education, hmm. which is just a lie. Never, right? That's our always the sell. Our education system's screwed up as it's ever been, and it's all it does is ever raise taxes on the local um, town to keep 
producing more bureaucracy in the education system. So just when the general fund and the assembly whizzes it away like it does on whatever it wants to do. So it, it's just a lie. Uh, it, it's like it, the lottery is no different than legalizing marijuana. I was just going to say that. It, There's always the and, justification that, oh, it, that's just what the person wants to do. It's not going to hurt anybody. <laughs> yeah, it's the same... It's the same um, trip down the same dirty river, and it it leads to the same things. So legalizing and just going to have a bunch of people growing a bunch of pot. It's not going to change anything economic in Rhode Island. It's going to cause far more in social destruction costs to the society than they're ever going to get from yeah. tax revenue. Right? It's like it's like the it's. Um, I was a director of. Board of directors of a homeless shelter in Westley when I was a young priest, and this is when the casinos were just getting large, you know, uh, Mohegan and Foxwoods, and uh, and they they came and visited us at uh, at um, the board of directors at the uh, homeless shelters, and they wanted to give us like two hundred grand um, because part of it was I had written in articles about the, the destruction of social cohesion in the greater westerly uh, New London area. You know, families, guys would just go and put their mortgages up. Wow. And, you know, we had, we had more homeless families than we could even make accommodations for, uh, of those of us that were involved in the homeless. Uh, but their, their uh, strategy was, of course, was to bribe us, right? We're going to give you $200,000 a year to your budget of your homeless shelter. Our whole, that, was, that was more than our whole budget, I think, at the time. And also, they were willing to put a wing on um, our facility. Of course, it would have to have the name of, it's like, I'm like, now I was, I was only the single vote, uh, but as president of the board, I'm like, absolutely not. Keep all your money, and we're not putting any name on anything. Um, it was uh, maybe one of my best political operations I ever did, but <laughs> we voted that down. Mm. But when I eventually left Wesley and became rector somewhere else, a new director came in, and you know what they did. Took the money. They took the money. Yeah. And, and immediately, the moral precepts of your, and originally that shelter started out under a Christian precept. It's totally abandoned that now, right? And so you just become a prostitute to these social forces and um, they're never ending no they're not I think if we look at it from the idea of stewardship we've talked about this at church before that stewardship goes far beyond just money and the impacts of these uh, I'll call them institutions not really institutions but these operations like the lottery go far beyond just the amounts of money that are changing hands. So for the person who maybe isn't doing any, let's say, just for the sake of argument, isn't doing any immediate harm to his family by participating in the lottery for fun, must consider the downstream effects of his actions because the lottery system disproportionately harms those who poor. are poor and in poverty and suffering from addiction. And then the same is said of legalizing drug use and marijuana that yeah sure as as someone who is privileged and has been blessed with 
with a stable family and with wealth and with means, maybe you can escape the more deleterious effects of this, but you're perpetuating an industry that preys upon the most vulnerable among Absolutely. us. Absolutely. The lottery, like you, uh, you know, I came to Tuxet Valley uh, in the early 2000s. You know, you go to the Cumberland Farms, so, you know, the local, you know, whatever, mart that's attached to the gas station, and you're talking about working class poor just lined up to buy lottery tickets. And I would sit there, it just break my heart. You know, and these guys, you could see them, you know, they're putting 20 bucks down, 40 bucks, which is huge money in the context of people who are probably on, almost all on some type of subsistence from uh, government systems and everything else. And they're never going to recruit any of that money statistically. No. You know, one in a million people are going to get anything, right? And you know, it makes the poor poorer and uh, the middle to upper middle class who, you know, they can afford to throw whatever at these things because it doesn't affect their lifestyle whatsoever. But the downstream effect of it is horrible. It's also the downstream effect of what you teach the next ensuing generation about the value of these things, mm. right? So if you're a rich kid and your dad, you know, threw X amount of thousands of dollars of gambling every week, uh, why you as a father don't think your kids are going to fall into a trap that could be 10 times worse than yours is this tells me how morally oblivious you are to cause and effect. And I think that's a great point. It, it's, it just goes on and on, you know. Um, very difficult things to get <laughs> anybody at parish level to take very seriously. It's hard because it's been inculcated so deeply into our collective psyche that these things are just innocuous and they're, they're part of the furniture now, culturally speaking, that they've always been there, they're not going away, it's not affecting me personally, so to speak, so it's really not a big deal. And why are you making a, such a big deal about this, Mark? You're just acting like you're holier than thou. Yeah, you have to, you know, you have to be even creative in your teaching, and you, the best you can try in the conversations is to come up with, you know, analogies that work. Like, say, I say, if you're a functional alcoholic, right? But it's clear you're an alcoholic, but you live in a middle-class lifestyle where your alcoholism doesn't destroy your your the well-being, economic well-being of your family. Then being a functional alcoholic is fine. So it teaches your kid that being a functional alcoholic is fine. If you're just blowing a little snow up your nose, all right, and um, you're not destroying your life, you really can't judge my kid if by 19 he's blowing a little snow up his nose, right? They're all related. It's all the same moral principles mm. uh, related to all of these issues. And so this cryptocurrency thing, it's just a, it's the massive scale of it that makes it so alarming, at least... Uh, even to those who are pro th this type of action. It's, um, it all doesn't matter until it all falls apart, like exactly. it just has. And then all of a sudden, I guess the culture, now the culture doesn't really ask moral questions about it. it. It's just about, oh, how can we make it for, so that people don't get this screwed? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not, well, were we, were we doing the right thing in the first place? It's how can we avoid this from happening next time? Because the last few years were great, and if you were at least a little bit versed in how the technology worked, you felt like you could make a lot of money really fast. Right. 
And so here's a popular, I think, counter argument to what we're just talking about. Then wouldn't you say that investing in the stock market is gambling? Oh, it can be. It can be. Right. It, it, from a Christian's perspective, it's it's what you invest in, not investing. And how and how you invest it too. Yes. Yes. And the difference between stocks, largely, broadly speaking, and many of the crypto investments that we're talking about is that stocks you're you're investing in a company on some sort of valuation of its value and the product that it provides. Right. So you are right. you are making an investment in contributing to the, I'll call it the capitalist enterprise. You're mm-hmm. contributing to the, the free markets and in the expectation that your investment is, it's a store of value and it's going to provide you something in return. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, in my younger days, you know, one of the classic liberal cases, they would argue, right, you, you shouldn't be investing any money uh, or even the government shouldn't even be investing in, in nuclear armament, right? To them, that was a great moral discrep. You know, mm. it's horrible. It was a horrible thing. But they, they, but they wouldn't make that modern correlation to growing dope. No, <laughs> right? They, no, that's good for the. It's that's good for the society. It's going to actually produce this revenue, and out of that revenue. Uh, uh, Reverend, we're going to uh, produce health care and feed the poor mm-hmm. and all the nonsense which will never happen. Yeah. Never happen, as opposed to having nuclear armament that defends country against legitimate mm-hmm. people who want to destroy you. That's immoral, right? It's, um, again, we're so philosophically unsound in our current state of being in the West that... Um, People will buy into anything, especially if you tell them they can make money fast. They'll buy into, they'll yeah. buy into anything. Yeah, and and they'll justify it, thinking it's perfectly okay. The ends that, always justify oh, the means. Absolutely. I think on the other hand, the difference between making the investment, like in a four hundred one k, versus playing the lottery or speculating on stocks, is on one hand with the with the speculation. You're putting in money, you're basically buying a chance to win more money. Whereas the investment is you're, you're purchasing a store of value, you're putting that money to work. And that's where the dividing line falls. Sure. I mean, you think about it, it goes all the way back to Alexander Hamilton, doesn't yeah. it? You know, the, the understanding of um, the American capitalistic system was that you invest in product that is a product that people want to buy, and the more they buy, the more you invest into the product. Um, there's nothing immoral about that whatsoever. It goes back to the, to the origins of mankind. That's how commerce evolved in the human experience. Um, but when the, the, the initial goal of any of these schemes is simply for you to make money that you know is going to lead to the detriment of somebody is utterly immoral, right? No matter how much you can bake it and, and shift it and dress it up and um, sell it to a generation for X amount of time, it eventually will show itself, you know? The bottom line is, right, Enron happened, you know, Bernie happened, and now this has happened. And just a matter of time, something's going to happen after this one. Yeah. Just in technology, 
isn't you know that, the whole thing about the blockchain and it's about I, I put that down secure and I put a question mark. No, it's not. It's only a matter of time before it's not secure. It's always it's a never ending race. It, we have things that we thought were that, are, that were secure even sure. digitally speaking, and technology is always advancing against right. itself. It's like trying to stay ahead of the. Uh, you know, in sports we love, it's trying to stay ahead of the steroid cheater. Mm. You can't, because the technology is always ahead of you who's chasing the cheater. And it's, so it is in commerce and everything else. Yes, you know? going to come and go. Yep. So I, I think um, we were recently in our last episode talking about how truth should not and cannot be defined by popular opinion or majority opinion. And I think that idea is also what has brought us to the topics that we're talking about today with the, uh, the widespread uptake of gambling, with the legalization of drug use and marijuana, where on the one hand, you're making a lot of money, it must be good, and the majority of people support it, so therefore it must be good and probably not harmful to the majority of people. And I think this was borne out also recently, well, a few years ago now, in 2018, when the Supreme Court mm. allowed the legalization of sports betting in all 50 states. And there are a few really interesting statistics about this. They're really sobering and eye-opening about what we've done since that 2018 legalization. So, four years, so in four years. It's been four years, yes, thank you. Um, so since then, we've seen sports betting pop up in all areas of life. You, you're familiar with DraftKings, FanDuel. You were just talking about, before the show, listening to sports radio, the whole enterprise, sports Endless. enterprise is driven by gambling on no, sports it's now. The ads are all over the place. Yeah. And the thing that strikes me, thinking about how vulnerable, pe vulnerable people are being preyed upon, oh, is yeah. if you, let's say you're watching on a smart TV or you're watching on a sports app, I have no doubt that there are integrations that allow betting on props and betting on uh, outcomes of games to pop up and integrate directly with what you're watching. So you don't even you don't even have to get up and go to the bank and then go to your bookie to place a bet. You just link it right to your bank account. You sit back on your couch and the button the buttons just pop up and gamify the whole idea of gambling your money on ah, it's just a so sports criminal. game. It's just so criminal. You know, you can see how vulnerable males are to this, right? Yeah. Like every sports guy, like you know, Adam, we talk we talk sports constantly, right? And it's like all of us could be the GM of any professional sports team, right? We're all experts in sports. And we're all good. So when he gets into gambling, everybody, all these guys think they know baseball will take advances. I know baseball better than everybody else. I've been studying baseball cards and watching baseball since I was six years old. No, you don't. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. But they really believe these things. You convince yourself you know? of it. And even even this, uh, uh, you know, the, the fantasy football mm -hmm. phenomenon, right? They actually think they could actually run the Patriots better than Bill Belichick, right? Because they, hey, they won their fantasy football league, right? It's the same type of mentality, and and the sports betting just adds to this astronomically. To this kind of perception that this this reality is true, right? 
And again, I'm going to make money doing this. And I'm going to make it quick, and it's going to be fast and all a lot. And the only people who are going to do that are the bookies. Gonna be making, <laughs> the gonna house be, always wins. The house always wins. Uh, just a matter of time, right? And, and that's, that's the real sinister part of gambling, is that you win just enough to think you're going to beat the system in the long run. Yep. Right? And it hooks you. And, you know, and so, you know, for a guy like, you know, poor guy like me, it's 50 bucks. The next guy up the line, it's 1000 next guy, it's 500000 But eventually, you lose it all. Just a matter of time. No matter who you are, you lose it all. Whether you're Tom Brady or any other person who thinks they're the smartest person on the planet. Um, that's why it's immoral. No? Very well said. You, know, you, um, you should be content with honest work for honest pay. Yeah. That's what we should be content with uh, in this life. And people simply aren't, right? And, and you go back to the trillions of dollars that were pumped into the system which helped lead to the whole cryptocurrency mm-hmm. phenomenon and then its crash and, all the, and then all the, the greed that goes into it. Um, you know, you, you, you got governments pumping trillions of dollars into the world's economy that nobody earned. No. Right? <laughs> so you teach people, uh, both consciously and unconsciously, that that's the right way to go about living life is for governments just to keep printing money to give to you for doing nothing. Yeah, I'm reminded of two Bible verses over the course of this conversation. The first is Proverbs 13:11, which says, "Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, mm. but whoever gathers little by little will increase it." Yeah, I think how simple that precept is. It's right. That's how you go about life. Yeah, it's the deepest truths are often almost always the simplest. Oh, absolutely. And that's the case with that. It is definitely proverbial, what you just quoted. And uh, who's got the patience to do that in this culture? Oh, gosh, no one. I I struggle with that, too. We all do. Right. Piece by piece, little by little. You know, only buy what you can afford. Um, I remember when I was a young priest, uh, a couple came to me. So this is almost 30 years ago. And, uh, of course, they were living together and all the other things that come with the, with the challenges. And, uh, but they, they hadn't even been married yet. And they had $30,000 on credit cards 30 years ago. Wow. Thirty thousand dollars, right? Thirty years ago, too. And, I, wow. and I'm sitting there. It's like you know, at the time I'm in, I'm thirty years old, late twenties, and I said, "Do you understand what compound interest is?" Well, they were college graduates. They had no idea what compound interest was, right? And I explained, "No." So they said, "Well, you know, I know it's." And you were talking credit cards then were eighteen percent, whatever they were, right? And they said, "Well, but I just I just pay the whole." And you just pay it off, and I said, no, it just keeps multiplying at 18% of whatever is debts left. You just keep adding 18% every, just, yeah. you know, no concept of it at all. And, and, that, and that's how it is with debt in this country, right? $31 trillion in debt, no big deal. No, we're, we're just paying interest on debts. Right. Trying to keep the GDP from crashing so that we don't go bankrupt as a country. We never pay off. I was, it, you know, I, I, it, 
he's not the only one, but he happens to be the president now. I lower the debt. You've never lowered a penny on the debt. All you've did is add tens of trillions of dollars to the debt. This idea that you slowed down the rate of the debt is not reducing the debt. That's how it's complete I, dishonesty, right? Right. I took out $30,000 on my credit card last month, and I only took out $15,000. Right. So I'm in less debt than I would have been. Right. Yeah. But that's all you have to say to an American yeah. is that he slowed the rate of the debt. No, no, he didn't. You know, or he lowered the debt, I should say. Yeah, he lowered no, the debt. No, he didn't. <laughs> it's just, uh, and so it works. Yeah. So Americans just go along with it, right? So you just have this endless deficit spending uh, at every level of government. And um, that somehow at the end of a sequence of events that the piper doesn't have to be paid. You know, this civics cost I talked about that I taught a while ago, uh, I posed the question what GDP was, right? Hmm. A few people knew what gross domestic product was. I said, but so what happens when gross domestic product does not is not as much as the interest you owe on the debt. And they looked all foggy, like, what does that mean? And of course, the answer is you're bankrupt. You're done. You're done. There's no way you cannot recover from that because there's nowhere else to get assets, right? right? And you're not paying down, you're just paying interest on what you keep borrowing. We're close to that. It's what I'm not, I can't remember exactly, yeah, but something sure. like 30% of the federal budget just right. goes to paying interest on the debt. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Never pays the, and you just keep borrowing trillions of dollars a year. Every six months it flips a trillion about, right? Something like that. Something crazy. So we're getting close to those things. Uh, it, it'll happen. It will happen because nothing's going to happen to stop this process. Right. There's, gonna, there's going to be no right. corrective the, until so austerity. Eventually there will be this massive, and probably in my lifetime, Right, uh, and it will be it'll be a worldwide crisis. Like make depression look like yeah, like child's play. And, Almost certainly. And uh, it's like Churchill in the wilderness in the twenties. You know, you're going bad idea. This is a bad idea. Nazis, the Germany's rearming. Bad idea. Ah, oh, no, it's great. The twenties are awesome. We, you know, we're singing these songs. You know, and that's what it's like today. If you're a voice saying these things, and it's. I'm not sure if there's any of them. There's a few of them, guys like uh, Rand Paul's a guy like that. But there's precious few in the government that even begins to address it. And, um, they're all related, everything. This cryptocurrency to all of this uh, quick, rich scheme stuff, is, um, it's all related to how we operate economically in this yeah. country. That philosophy pointing back to that verse from Proverbs that we want to get rich quick, we want wealth gained hastily, is part of our challenge as Christians, especially in ministry, to promote a positive vision of the Christian life and Christian moral virtue. This idea that our competition is, it's my money, I need it now, get rich quick, or socially speaking, we want change, we want it now, we're going to have social revolution. We're going to make it happen. And on the other hand, to paraphrase from Jordan Peterson, the countervailing argument is something to the effect of, we want incremental, reasonable change 
in due time. Yes. And how do you make that attractive? And obviously that's very much unappealing when it's divorced from the Christian worldview, which comes with it the idea that our our reward is not of this world. It's not going to come to us in right. this life. It's beyond well, the American the, veil. Ex- the American experience with its its greatest sin and its greatest social issue, slavery, was dealt this way, right? It's we're going to kick the can on slavery because it's eventually just going to go away by natural processes of the capitalistic system. Um, it's just going to go away because it's not going to be feasible. Well, the problem is Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, right? So that and. Uh, the, the bottom line, slavery was not going to go away unless what happened happened. Right. Right? It took a war to end slavery. And it's, it's, it's going to take a social civil war to end these practices in this country, which I just simply don't believe will happen. No, no, definitely. That definitely won't happen. There's, there's not going to be any sort of major moral corrective. Pushback. No. No. There's no voice. Not the... It, I, the ultimate sin, I think, for us sitting here as ecclesiastics is it's not even going to come to the church. No, and that is a great transition into something else that I wanted to look at here. To put into context, I think, first, that we, we legalized sports betting four years ago. Since that time, Americans have spent more than $125 billion on legal gambling outlets since that Supreme Court ruling. And to put that number into context, $125 billion is a bit more than the amount that was spent on pet food supplies and veterinary care in the entire country for that year. It was also more than the net income for all of America's farmers that year. That was staggering. Spent on sports betting. First thing that struck me when you said that, like pets and pet food, all that stuff, right? This is an incredible fact. There are more dogs in America than there are children. Wow. There are more dogs in America than children. Did not know that. How's that for a moral evaluation of a culture? Right. Right? And so the fact that, so, which means you're spending more on your dogs than you are on your children. (laughs) And to go back to the farming thing, right? America, the greatest natural gift that in God's providence was giving to those who settled North America was the Midlands in this country, right? It's the greatest breadbasket in the world. We can produce more food than any place else in the world. Um, But each year we lose more land to all kinds of things, right? There's less and less families farming. Um, We actually pay people not to grow stuff. And yet, look, look at, we spend more money on gambling than we are in really securing up uh, our ability to produce food that's going to feed us for generations to come. It, it's just, you can't get more goofed up in your, prior, your priorities yeah. than these type of things. And so examples like that you just gave, um, that's, what, that's what a faithful pastor should be talking about. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Yeah. Now, this episode right now will release close to the Super Bowl for 2023. 
to give it some additional context. The, the high holy the day. The highest holy day in American culture. Last year's Super Bowl. You did even genuflect when you said that. No, I'm something of a heretic <laughs> in that regard. Last year's Super Bowl, it was estimated that a record 7.61 billion, with a B, was bet by Americans on that one single game. Oh my gosh. And I can assure you that record will be broken again right. this year. On everything from the, and the year after from the that. toying cost, uh, how long it will take to do this, to do that. The length of the halftime show, here is, can right. gamify every single aspect of that outing. It's such a sickness, I can't even relate to it. I just can't even fathom it. It's, it's sad. It's, it's really sad. But I think you alluded to this before. Christians are complicit in this in large regard, especially American Christians. We've looked at a lot of surveys here. There was one survey that was done in 2016 Lifeway. That's the same company that did the one that we discussed in our previous episode about uh, attitudes um, of evangelicals, the state of theology. Mm. In 2016, they put out a survey that only 36% of Christians thought sports betting was morally wrong. So only about one in three Christians. That doesn't surprise me at all. No. And pastors, the encouragement, again, this was uh, six years ago, pastors had more reservations with a majority telling Lifeway that betting on sports was morally wrong and three quarters believed it shouldn't be legal which it, it shouldn't be shouldn't be legal so there was some there was more reservations to be found with the pastors but that percentage has surely shrunk oh, sure. since then it's and once you 60 percent and once you get under 42 the age striations of pastors changes right, how you just, respond it'll to that radically question. shift right it's it'll become be, more and more normalized it'll be under half by whatever a decade or something yeah and if it's how, how does it pass a differential between sports betting and any other type of betting right where do you draw that line why is uh, sports betting idea. okay versus betting at a casino okay I mean, it goes you know it so goes i was talking to this professor that works at a college here that makes a lot of money on basketball in this state hockey and basketball but this whole the way college students are now used by advertisers to make money, you yeah. know, and all of this stuff. And he asked me, you know, he knew I was a Division One athlete, and he's like, what do you think? I go, I think it's disgusting. The whole system's disgusting. You already get a free education, right? But now you, now you can, like, stick logos all over yourself and get money. I go, but what's even more unfair about it is that it only caters to really two sports generally basketball and baseball i said so if you're a division one athlete and you're on the basketball team you never you're not going to make all big east you're not going to make anything but they're going to stick a logo on you and give you 20 grand a year i said but you could be an all-american lacrosse player certainly a track athlete nobody's going to give you a penny no so why are you more deserving than a premier athlete, a, a, a sport, another sport, a person who's far more of a premier athlete than you, right? It's, it's, it's not about the well-being of college athletes. It's about money, 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 money. That's all it's about, money, right? Always and forever. And, 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 and even in college football and basketball, 
one, not even one percent of any of those guys are going to play professionally. So, yeah, it's and so, infinitesimally right. Small. And so the money they got, right? They'll drink away and party away or whatever while they're in college for a few years. It'll be pitilance compared to the rest of their life. And what does that taught them? What does it do? How does it? How does it better the whole education system? It makes it worse, right? It makes it just what it is, this cesspool that, it, uh, that education is becoming. Um, it's, it just, it's just endling, endless adding to it, you know? It's, um, I mentioned to you, you and your brother, uh, I, I talked sports, but um, just on principle, I haven't watched one minute of the NFL, the NBA, or Major League Baseball for three years uh, with its whole movement towards its political rec stands on everything, advertising it on the field, on the basketball court. I wouldn't spend, I wouldn't give you one cent of my money. Not one penny. I'm not going to buy one ticket. I'm not going to go watch you. I'm not going to aid and abet any of that. And I love sports, but I'm not doing it, you know? And again, it doesn't affect. People can't correlate their faith to that you are aiding and abetting this stuff by spending your money on entertainment that does these things. It's a common theme of everything that we've been talking about that you, you can never divorce what you're doing what, or what is happening in the larger culture from the moral element. There are moral elements to everything that happens in the economy and in entertainment and Christians need to be discerning about that one, by listening to their conscience, and then two, examining what the downstream effects are of what they're doing. And right. certainly when it comes to watching sports, that's something to a different degree than participating directly in, say, the lottery or yes. or um, legal uh, recreational drugs, for example. So I think it's important to make that distinction, but we still need to we still need to keep our consciences clear, and we shouldn't feel an obligation to support an enterprise that is openly hostile to your Christian values. Yeah, I mean, the last holdout for me, I was, and I've always said, you know, like the NHL, these are like the most, these are the most masculine men, right? Hockey. The guy, the guy who goes to a hockey game, almost even in the Sun Belt, the, the, these are pretty, they're pretty much blue collar guys, like to bang against each other. Hockey is a fast sport, and its whole origin, right? But uh, yeah, like two weeks ago, they started a, a program for transgendered youth hockey leagues, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's everywhere, it never ends, you know? And there's one uh, NHL player came out last week and of course he got shut down and he, he's like, this is not what we're about. We, we play hockey. Hmm. We're, we're not the determiners of social policy in the world. Professional sports shouldn't be involved in these issues, right? And of course, he took it on the chin from every direction. And um, people think that they are, though, that these places should be experimentations and affirmations of all of these other things that go on in culture and gain uh, their momentum into the political process. And so they'll win. They'll win out in all of these places. Um, um, the remnant will be the remnant. <laughs> it's called the remnant for a reason. Yeah. Uh, it's, but it, it's just, to me, it's, it's unimaginable. 
it's so true though. You know, darkness tries to get into any place, right? And the crannies that all of this stuff has made its way into in the last few years of our cultural life, it's just, it's, it, to me, it was incomprehensible just a few years ago to think we would, we would decay to this level of existence. But it's where we're at. And uh, Semper Fi, God's looking for a few good men. And um, they're rare every generation, every generation, they're rare every year. God's looking, actually God's looking for a lot of good men. <laughs> not, yeah, not, not a <laughs> few. for more than a few. Not a few good men, right? Yeah, always faithful, always faithful. How are we doing on time over there? About an hour. So I think it's a good spot to take a break just to avoid any potential technical difficulties. So okay. we will return in a few minutes. All right, so we're back from our break and we covered a lot of ground earlier in our conversation. And I think it'll be good for us to just recap what we've talked about and tie it all up into a practical application that we can use going forward and thinking about Christian moral virtue. Mm. The first thing that I want to say, though, is that I promised two Bible verses earlier on in this episode. We only got through one. It's because we're really good at talking. The second that I had in mind was a verse from one of Paul's epistles. The name of the book escapes me, where he writes, to him who is unwilling to work, let him not eat. Yeah. And that is the total other side of the coin of the discussion that we've been having and is equally unpalatable to the prevailing attitude of the public today. Yeah, that, that's a verse, you know, that comes up obviously in the lectionary cycle once every three years. And uh, it's one of those verses that sting people too, right? They yeah. hear it. Uh, Sounds harsh. Yeah, it's like a lot of the Jesus, hard Jesus sayings. And, um, but of course, there is a context to it. So, in, in, and you and I wouldn't be saying that the mentally ill and the mentally handicapped uh, should be in the same uh, requirements that you and I, able-bodied people, are. But able-bodied people absolutely should work. And they shouldn't be given taxpayer money not to work when they can work, right? Uh, it's to such an extent, I was talking to you off here about, I read this morning in San Francisco that they're going to pay, if you're a black woman and pregnant, the, the city of San Francisco is going to pay you not to work while you're pregnant. Not white women, but just black women, right? And um, which conjures up all kinds of ideas. I mean, what is racism in this country anymore? And all of those types of things, inequity, and all these, all these jargons that get thrown at us all the time. But um, yeah, you can't even sustain, obviously, a culture of civilization when able-bodied people don't work. No. And we're, we're heading at, to a, at a meteoric pace towards this. I, I'm not sure how you get this segment, and it's a significant portion of the population since the arrival of the pandemic, where you paid people not to work. How do you ever get them to work again? Right? We're so under, we have so, we're so underemployed. This, just needs for millions and millions of workers 
And because they're on the dole, or they just stop working, the unemployment rate seems low. It's all artificial, right? Right. Um, we can't produce goods. We, we're not going to be able to be competitive, certainly against China and uh, our biggest competitors in the world when Americans don't want to work. Um, it's, it, again, it's immoral. Right? You, you shouldn't get things for nothing, for doing nothing. And, and of course, what happens is, as we know in the system, it just becomes generational. Yeah. And it's a tool by certain segments of the political establishment to keep certain people enslaved to a system. And it's, it's horrific what it's done to people, right? And it's no, it's no secret, you know. Uh, every, ethnic, every ethnic group that comes to America in time finds it a way with a majority of the people into the middle class. Mm -hmm. Every single one, except for one. Right? African Americans have remained predominantly urban mm. people dependent on the social system, dominated by one particular political party that leaves them there. Right? How is that good? How is that equitable? How does that enhance and further their lives and movement? And, just goes on and on, but it really, it, it really goes right back to this verse yeah. to such a large extent, right? Um, uh, how many, how many? Uh, I, I think about the controversy around um, the SAT scores that's in the Supreme Court now about discriminating against Orientals because they score so well in the SATs, yep. so they get punished in the process because they're too smart, right? It's like the opposite of what you should do. You should reward uh, acumen and achievement, uh, not give somebody a free pass to give something they haven't earned. Yeah, it's a perverse <clears throat> incentive structure that rather than work to knock down the systemic problems and inequities that are holding back the people at the bottom to raise them up right. to meet the higher standard. You both lower the standard and you punish the people who are exceeding that standard in order to artificially level the playing field. Yes, and of course we're going to have another uh, blow up in this country because the Supreme Court is going to overturn affirmative action. And that's yes, in all likelihood. And that's going to lead to another, I hope not a summer of 2020, but something similar to that is going to happen, right? Because instead of seeing that as actually good for the culture, that we've arrived at a point where this isn't a driving necessity. It's no longer needed. Right. And that it will actually allow at an expedited right, uh, rate those people of minority to actually move further into the system as opposed to being held back by a system that wants them to be un unspokenly held in the position they're in. Um, it's messed up. It's messed up. And um, this, again, there's always that lack of courageous voices to say why it's wrong. <laughs> and why we need to move forward, truly forward, yeah. uh, 
in social policy that brings about equity that leads to the common good of the most possible people mm. in the country. And that's just not the motivation of politicians. It's it, not there. It's not. It's not their motivation. Their motivation is just to get reelected and contain, contain power, right? But it's not really for the common good. On any plethora of issues we're going to talk about today and for the next until, until this show's shot. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Until we're uh, taken off air. Yeah. Our, our right. producer uh, goes on strike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looks for more money. Yeah. So we've talked about perverse incentive structures. We've talked about easy money. We've talked about gambling and the lottery and recreational drug use. All of these things that are wrapped up into this idea that I think one, as long as it doesn't hurt me, it's okay. As long as the majority opinion goes along with it, it's okay. Really, at the end of the day, the ends justify the means. And I think risk-taking where there is value involved, where there are assets involved, is different than gambling. That mm -hmm. taking a risk where there's no value involved is paying for a chance to win your money back, whereas, like we said, investing is using your money wisely. Yeah. Entrepreneurship. Good, entrepreneurship, exactly. Right. Yeah. And you're, you're hoping to provide greater value to society later on down the road. Now, people can debate whether or not Bitcoin can ever be a store of value. I think right now, the way the incentives are set up, that it, it's unclear what the long-term outlook would be. If you were to ask me, going back to our initial conversation, where the value is, it is in probably in the blockchain technology itself, just again as one of the many technological advancements that the 21st century is seeing, and as with artificial intelligence and so many other things, good things will come of it, bad things will come of it, there will be pros and cons, but the era of this get rich quick off of crypto speculation appears to be coming to an end. You're just placing your money down in hopes that the stock will go to the moon. So all of that said, I think the last thing for us to consider is how can we as Christians encourage and help our brothers and sisters in Christ guard against these temptations to greed and to easy money to the ends justifying the means. What are the tools at our disposal? Well, I, I really don't think it's uh, complicated. I think it's, we, we simply have to go back to the sources and reiterate these truths. Uh, we, we're, we're naive and wrong to think that even our most devout truth-sitters even know any of these things. It's too, it's too thick, it's too deep in the culture. It, it, they're too, it's in too interwoven in their everyday activities and motions. And so we have to go back and lay it out. Yeah. As preachers, priests and pastors, we get to lay it out. Why these things, why God's principles are the best principles. And again, they're not negotiable principles. Um, but we can't assume that even, even our people we love and, again, the most devout people really know uh, these truths. They don't. They don't. And as Jesus tells us, we 
are going out as sheep in the midst of wolves. We need to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We tend to focus on being as innocent as doves, but we also need to be as wise as serpents. And to add on to what you're saying, I think the advice for us, for Christians who are seeking to faithfully live and defend a Christian worldview, we cannot afford to be culturally naive. And the (laughs) recurring thing of what we've been talking about is that nothing is morally neutral or very few things are really ever morally neutral so when it comes to whatever the next big thing is whatever the next fad is whether it's whether it's an investing craze or it's a type of technology there are always going to be downstream moral implications of that and if you just blindly accept something that comes up because it's new as being neutral and and or even morally good without thinking it through, you do so to your own peril. Yes. And it's easy for us to just take things as they come because it's easier rather than to hit pause and actually ask ourselves, well, what other effects, what other people is this going to impact? So I think that's that's really where our Christian focus needs to be, practically speaking. Well, I think you nailed it. It's- the pastors have to become uh, well it's going to take a new generation of pastors to be able to do this but that our role isn't to create a cathartic atmosphere for people to come hang out with us for a couple hours on a Sunday that's it's not our role uh, it is to be the biblical mandate of what a presbyter is to be right in season out of season teaching the truth and the gospel yes is yes and no is no and uh, again, going back to the, the genesis of the charisma of the church and uh, reiterating it to a new direction, there is no other solution to anything we uh, face uh, in the contemporary world. Um, you, you have to create a new memory bank, hmm. if you will, for... Um, for the for Christians, and then that new generation has to continue its divine mission of sharing the truth in their life through a lively faith. Absolutely, it's it's really not that complicated. It, our challenge is that you and I, our colleagues, don't even want to hear that answer. Not really. No, but, it's. They want, they, in a sense, the pastors want to get rich, quick scheme too. You know, like how do I, how do I have a full church with a big budget without having to deal with any controversial issue, yeah, any hard issue, any pressing issue, any moral issue that God says is immutable, but I don't want to touch. We want the grow your church quick scheme, right? And so, you and I talked about it, and I've been to enough conferences to make my head like fall off, like. This will grow your congregation. It's just not that hard. The answer is simple. Preach the gospel, live a holy life. That'll grow your congregation. And just like financial investing, investing in other Christians through discipleship is always going to take place effectually when it is done slowly and surely and incrementally. Right? Steady, steady, steady. Patience, right? Sunday's readings are reading from James, you know, and for this third Sunday of Advent. You know, we need to be patient. P- 
patient, like the farmer waiting for his crop to come mm. in. We have to be patient. And so it is. So patience for me will be the rest of my life as a priest. And uh, it may be yours too. Um, it's that simple, right? God's in charge. You and I can't change God's will one iota, mm. right? We only can cooperate with it. And we, we, we should be cooperating with it in joy and anticipation that, you know, he who began this good work is going to bring it to completion in us. <laughs> so, wow, that's pretty cool. He can even use guys like us. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, no. And we've just, we've lost sight of all of these things, you know, collectively as the church. Um, too, way too many people think they are the messiahs. They, go, they, they bring this unique perspective to ministry that nobody else has ever thought of. And it's going, they're going to have some unique gig that, in some angle, that is, is going to uh, change the whole dynamic of Christian ministry, right? You're just kidding yourself. Just kidding yourself. And you when they get away with it for a season or two, it just emboldens them more that they actually are that, that type of a person, right? They don't want to be no lowly parish priest like you. <laughs> no, <laughs> who, want, no. who wants to do that, right? <laughs> Hanging out, you know, ministering to whatever, and God's providence comes your way and doing it faithfully and being content with it. Um, no, you know, you need a drummer, man. We do. We, we <laughs> you, sorely lack a drummer you, you, and a fog machine. We have a drummer. We have a fog machine. Yeah, it's just, um, you know, I hope people take that with the levity it's intended, but it's, uh, uh, yeah. Our joy in ministry is actually just doing it, just doing the ministry, being incarnational yeah. men involved in, with the privilege by God's calling to be involved in people's life from the moment they take their first breath until they take their last breath. What a, what a glorious vocation. It's like, a beautiful reality. Like, yeah, that God gives us. There's right? a beauty and, and we glory. we run from it. Holiness. We run from it. We don't embrace it. Right. right. And we want others to embrace it and want to be that type of a servant uh, of, of the only entity in the universe that won't let you down the triune God and we just got to keep we got to hang in there do it with a, with a genuine joy and smile on our face and with confidence that God's promises never end right? amen same today yesterday tomorrow and um, there's no variation due to shadow or change with our God and that's all we have to offer the culture. And if we do it faithfully, then um, we win. Not, be, not because we have more toys than anybody else, but because we were faithful to our call. Yeah. yeah. There's no gimmick that is going to make the preaching of the gospel more effective. The only thing that's ever worked and ever will work is the faithful preaching of the gospel and studying the Bible and being faithful to God's will and yep. church discipline. So those things will never change and they should be an encouragement to us that we, um, we, can, we will persevere and we will remain faithful to these things. Every true enduring renewal of the church always 
happens and succeeds because it goes back to the very principles that we're mm -hmm. talking about. All the other schemas fail. They all fail. And so it's simple, right? Just do the right thing. <laughs> uh, and be willing to take the consequences for it. And when we accept that, there's, there's great peace and great encouragement in it. There's a, there's a beauty and a glory to the, a life lived with a lively faith, one that is humble and, and dedicated to personal holiness. Yeah. For, you know, you know for personally, I, can't, I could have never lived with myself in the last 20 years if I had compromised uh, those principles. And you, you're not going to be a happy person no. when you bail on what you know to be true. Your conscience will just eat you alive, right? We, our, our sin nature alone is enough to keep us on our toes, right? We don't need to f just succumb to the culture. And, um, yeah, it's, a, it's the greatest life. Being a Christian is the greatest honor. The greatest life, the greatest honor. I think that's a great place to stop as well. Amen. I appreciate your time, Thank Father you. Galloway. Thank as always, this us. is great, and that'll do it for today's conversation. Thank you to everyone who joined us for this episode and listened on the podcast or watched us on YouTube. Please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating if you enjoyed this episode, this show. It means a lot to us. Every little bit helps in growing this humble ministry. So I thank you for your continued prayers. We look forward to seeing you next time. God bless.